Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me today. Before we get started, can I just say the time change should be outlawed and criminalized immediately? Okay, having said that, we are going to do something fun today and different and interesting. But before we get there, kind of as a prelude to how we get there, I want to talk about two things. One of the really nice things about having a podcast like this is I get to I get to say what I want, right? I get to talk about what I want. And today I want to talk about something that happened over the last week or two. And I think it's really important to discuss this because it goes to what we're trying to do in these podcasts, what we tried to do in my book and the one that's coming out. You know, it, which is to engage in a dialogue and to be thoughtful and to be critical and to be evaluative and to do it in an ac- academically rigorous and honest way. So, someone um, on social media made a post a little while back, and it's nobody that I've ever met personally. So that should dispel, (laughs) just in case anybody's wondering who it might be. Uh, But I wrote back and said, while I don't agree with all of your history or positions, I respect your opinions and your thought-provoking posts. I thought that was pretty nice. So I get a response. And the response says, the response says, respect is the, key, is the key to healthy debate, but history is history, and cartel history is very consistent and predictable. And frankly, that set me off a little bit. Not in a horrible way, but you know, you know when somebody walks up and says, hey, I want to tell you something, but no offense intended. You know what's coming, right? Or when I'm in court and I say, with all due respect, Your Honor, that basically means I think you're stupid or doing something stupid or something wrong, but I really like my bar license, so I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to say, with all due respect. And this is, you know, respect is key, but history is history. And no, it's not. And that's what really bothered me. And I'm going to read to you what precipitated my initial response in just a second but history is different than dates on a timeline right we know that world war ii was started when nazi germany invaded poland right we know that and we could do the exact date the exact time the exact location but what did that mean what did it precip- what precipitated it There are hundreds of books written on that topic. You can also put events in a timeline, right? We could, to keep the World War II metaphor going, we could say we know for sure when Pearl Harbor happened, and we know for sure when bombs were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. 
But having those dates doesn't tell history. Those are just dates on a timeline. What precipitated the raid on Pearl Harbor? Could it have been avoided? Why wasn't it avoided? Were anybody else involved? What are the circumstances that led our nation, the United States, to go from being the victim in Pearl Harbor to destroying two cities, killing thousands of innocent people, or at least civilians, if you don't want to say innocents. That's what history is. History is not dates on a timeline. History is an understanding of how and why things occurred, what they meant going forward. So let me read to you, at least in part, what was said that led me to answer or to respond the way I did. Oops, one second here. Okay, here we go. So this person said, the U.S. should have sent U.S. special operations into Mexico to take down the first real Mexican cartel headed by Rafael Caro Quintero when he ordered the torture and murder of DEA special agent Kiki Camarena. That was the moment in time when we, the U.S., misinterpreted the cartel problem as a criminal problem instead of a narco-terrorist threat that would grow and come to threaten the world. Now the chickens have come home to roost. And remember, I said I don't always agree with your history. The response was history is history. Here's what I find compelling, and anybody who's listened to more than one or two of these episodes already knows what's coming. Of everything that was said in, in that paragraph written by this person, smart person, knowledgeable person, right, well-intentioned, he responds, history is history. In my opinion, there's only one statement in there, one that is verifiable history, and that is that Special Agent Kiki Camarena was abducted, tortured, and murdered. That's it. And as most of you know, I don't think that there was a Guadalajara cartel, and I certainly don't think that Rafael Cairo Quintero was the head of it. And most importantly, I don't believe that the cartel system that emerged in Mexico would have been muted, that it never would have occurred if Rafael Caro Quintero had been murdered or killed, assassinated, whatever, shortly after Agent Cameron was killed. Don't believe it for a second. So... In my mind, history isn't history. We have a verifiable event. Everything else that is said in this piece, lots of what is said in other places, the last NARC included, is either, in that case, made up, stories by alleged witnesses, or its opinion based on maybe some facts. 
History is vital. But history is only vital. History is only helpful. History is only educational if there is robust conversation about it. Look at the news. Every single day, it seems like we learn something new about our ancestors, about the evolution of the human race, about when man crossed into a certain area, when the family tree split such as to form the human race as it is today, when they developed intelligence, when they started using tools, all of that. All of that is fascinating. It's important. But it's all subject to change. None of them are saying history is history. If we want to think about public policy, if we want to think about the cartel situation, if we want to engage in intelligent communication and dialogue with friends, family, co-workers about the cartels in Mexico, alternative methods of dealing with them, we have to understand history, but we have to do it in a way that's not simply saying these events happened and that's it. There's no reason to have a dialogue. There's no reason to listen to opposing points of view. I submit that that is dangerous. And that it's a, an example of a much larger problem in the United States, in particular in our politics. Okay, enough of that. Yesterday, somebody sent me a very, very nice email and said, hey, I've looked at a few of your podcasts, and it seems to me that you are a CIA and DEA apologist and are a bit naive. Um, I can accept lots of, um, lots of definitions, lots of words to characterize me. I'm not sure naive fits, but I understood the point. And I said, thank you very much for your email and for your comments, your thoughts, and stay tuned because we are planning on talking about some things with respect to the CIA that may change your mind or may not. And that's what we're going to do today. So what we're going to do today is talk about the CIA. And we're going to provide a bit of an overview. And I want you to think of this as we're framing the discussion. So today we're going to talk about CIA black operations. We're going to look at one in particular. Doesn't have anything to do with Mexico or the cartels. We're just looking at the CIA at that point. Number two, we're going to look at some allegations that have come up in the past about the CIA's involvement in narcotics, narcotics trafficking. We'll look at some assertions with respect to El Chapo. And at the end, we'll look um, at a couple of things with respect to the Garcina, Garcia Luna trial and case. The idea here, again, is to provide that overview to give you a framework then 
in subsequent weeks, not necessarily every week, every week, but we're going to do it in subsequent weeks. We're going to drill down onto a couple of points. We're going to analyze the CIA, the CIA's involvement, and then we're going to come back to the Camarena case in particular, and we're going to reevaluate the allegations that have been made that we've talked about before, and I submit to you, we're going to re-debunk those allegations, but we're going to do it in a different way. And hopefully by doing it this way, we present the argument, present the case that we've already made in a different way that appeals to some of those folks who still hold out a belief uh, you know, of, of certain CIA involvement. Okay. We can get into that in much more detail. But again, today is a general overview. Now, CIA black operations, they are the stuff of myth, the stuff of legend, and most importantly, they're the stuff of Hollywood. And I think it gets really, really hard for us to understand what really happened. That's a lot of reallys. But what the true facts are, what CIA really does, because we've seen it on TV so much. You know, I was making an analogy last night. I saw a documentary that says something like 45% of all the cowboys in the West were African-American. A lot of them were slaves who'd been released. They came to the West. You know, half of all the cowboys were not white men who looked like John Wayne. Uh, but we don't know that because every movie we see is John Wayne or Gary Cooper or whoever, you know. And, and the same thing here. You know, we see the the Jack Ryans and the Sidney Bristows of Hollywood going different places. And, God, you know, the two I just mentioned, I love watching their shows. I, I you know, I, I have... <laughs> I have all the seasons of Alias on DVD. But it doesn't help because it doesn't let us know what, what is true. Right? And by their very nature, black ops are secretive, so it's not like we get news reports on them on a regular basis. But here's some things we do know. June 2007, a series of documents were released that were called the Family Jewels. And... The family jewels revealed in varying levels of depth, um, varying levels of animos- uh, animosity, anonymity, things like illegal domestic surveillance, assassination plots and assassinations, uh, the overthrowing of elected leaders in the Middle East, in Europe, in South America kidnapping, and other activities. Now, these Family Jewels activities took place, generally speaking, 1950s through the early 1970s. When they were released in 2007, then-CIA Director Michael Hayden said, well, we wanted to release these and provide them because they provide, he says, a glimpse of a very different time and a very different agency. Now, there are many people out there who are going to say it's not a very different time. It's not a very different agency. 
this is just a white line when they had to admit to certain things because the documents were going to come out in one way or another. But that at its core, regardless of what its stated mission is, these are things the CIA does, has done, will do, and will always do. These are things that, generally speaking, don't have congressional oversight, etc. There's also a special activities division of the CIA. Um, it is considered one of the most mysterious branches of operatives in the world. It's not technically a military unit or outfit, but they're highly specialized, highly trained, very versatile operatives, very much in the nature of the Delta Force or Navy SEAL Team 6. Occasionally, stories will come out, whether it's in Afghanistan or other places, about activities of this special activities division, but by and large, they are more secretive, even than Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. I want to talk for just a couple minutes about an operation that took place in Europe after World War II through a lot of the Cold War. Again, it has nothing specifically to do with kind of our cartels, conspiracies, and Camarena agenda. But it's a good example of what the CIA can be involved in. And so I think it's helpful to understand it, even if we don't go into great detail. So shortly after World War II, there became a series of operations within Western Europe in many of the Western European, including Scandinavian nations, Operation Gladio became known as the kind of the overarching tent above all of these individual operations. And it is the code name, Operation Gladio, code name for a clandestine stay-behind operation that was armed resistance, initially organized by the Western Union, which then became NATO, and really run in large respect by the CIA in collaboration with the individual nations and intelligence agencies. The idea was to use these stay-behind um, operations in case there was the feared uh, invasion of the Warsaw Pact nations or efforts by the Soviet Union or communists more generally to invade or otherwise take uh, hold of uh, Western Europe. There is a uh, a Swiss history professor, Daniel Ganser, who's written a number of articles and books about Gladio. Uh, and then there's also a book much later by a Paul Williams where he tries to put this stuff together. Ganser, in particular, looks at Gladio in a much more nefarious sort of way. 
and his allegations um, basically take the form that Gladio funded, supported, styled groups when there wasn't a Soviet invasion, took steps to discredit left-wing groups, left-wing politicians through what is called a strategy of tension, which included acts of false flag domestic terrorism. The idea of tension was that if people believe that there's this terrorism, if people believe that there is a threat of invasion, a threat of further uh, terroristic activities, that allows for greater control and manipulation of public opinion. The idea is, if you can instill fear in the populace and place the blame on communists and left-wing opponents, you've won. Ganser makes allegations, and and you know there's there's a great debate in academia about the degree to which the accusations are supported or supportable. But he makes accusations that include false flag terrorism in Western Europe that resulted in casualties of innocent civilians in Western Europe solely to support this strategy of tension. The Operation Gladio really kind of came to light in its full form in the 1990s when an Italian judge started investigating uh, a couple of things. The uh, Italian prime minister at one point came out and said, yep, we were involved in this, but it's not as bad as you think. State Department for the United States in 2006 and it said the same thing. Yep, here's what it was, but it's not quite as bad as everybody makes it look. So that's an example of something that a lot of people in the media, a lot of people in academia, a lot of people who study the intelligence community in the United States believe exists, and that are operations that are off the books, that have no congressional oversight, that probably are not funded in any way through the congressional appropriations process. There, if you if you look online, you'll see some posts that talk about how uh, the CIA, in particular, gets funded, and they'll talk about a black box of money. That's different because there's still money being allocated from Congress that doesn't have an exact purpose. Kind of goes into you know this this blind trust account that the CIA can use, but it still can be traced. Um, or at least there's some trail from Congress to the CIA. A lot of people suggest, and we're going to talk about this going forward, that there are operations that have no financial ties, no oversight ties to the U.S. Congress at all. That's the deep black ops that we're most concerned about. Okay? Some would also suggest that there are black ops elements within the CIA 
that act as quasi-independent operators so that their oversight, even within the CIA, is minimal. Again, we'll talk about that. But I wanted to mention it. I wanted to frame it in the sense of this Operation Gladio and some other things. CIA involvement in drugs, narcotic trafficking has been discussed for years. And it has come up in a number of places. We talked about the Gary Webb accusations in the 70s and 80s that the CIA was largely responsible for the crack cocaine epidemic in America's inner cities. Um, We've talked with respect to the web allegations of how they were really um, disregarded in large part at the time and have gained a lot more credibility over the years. There are other books. There are um, books that have said that the involvement of the CIA and others in the U.S. government in a kind of a complicity in drug trafficking around the, the world started as far back as 1947. He wrote a book called The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Drug Trade. There are allegations that um, the CIA remains directly involved in drug trafficking And when I say involved in, that almost always means profits from drug trafficking around the world, including the Middle East, including Asia, including South America, and including Mexico. Um, There's another book. By, written by a, a Peter Dale Scott, where he says since, since at least 1950, there has been a global CIA drug connection operating more or less continuously to this day. Okay. Um, he also goes on to say that it um, the drug trade is a global financial complex of hot money dark money, if you, is another way of looking at it, uniting prominent business, financial, and government, as well as underworld figures, a sort of indirect empire operating alongside existing governments, hundreds of billions of dollars in annual revenues are produced, a, gov- a U.S. government-supported bonanza for the CIA, organized crime, and Western financial institutions. Governments themselves are the links they develop with major traffickers. Are oh, Let me say that again. I think I misstated. Governments themselves and the links they develop with major traffickers are the key both to the drug trafficking problem and to its solution. So, you know, the idea that the CIA has been involved in drug trafficking in various places around the world, has been around since the 1950s, and the idea that it is supported, acknowledged, whether directly, indirectly, wink, wink, nod, nod, by others in 
the U.S. government and other governments around the world, those allegations are out there. As I said, I just want to frame the issues for us today. Now, if you remember back in 2010, for a couple of years, there was the whole Fast and Furious uh, case. I don't want to delve into the specifics of it because I, I think it's a a hotbed for misunderstanding and misinterpretation and doesn't necessarily directly apply to where we're going. But I do want to read to you a few things that some have written recently that connect the Fast and Furious activities to the Sinaloa cartel, most particularly to El Chapo, and then look at allegations of a connection between the CIA and El Chapo. So, in April 2011, uh, a large cache of weapons were traced to the Fast and Furious program, but also included some uh, military-grade weapons that were difficult to obtain legally in the U.S., such as anti-aircraft machines and grenade launchers. They were found in the home of a Jose Antonio Torres Marufo, who, it is said in this uh, you know, expose, this journalistic um, examination of the case. It is said that he was a prominent Sinaloa cartel member who lived in Ciudad Juarez. He was eventually indicted but evaded law enforcement for a while, was eventually um, arrested and tried in t- 2012. Then the second example brought up is on November, November 23, 2012, two firearms linked to the ATF were found at the scene of a shootout between Sinaloa cartel members and the Mexican military. One of the weapons was an AK-47 type rifle trafficked by Fast and Furious suspect Uriel Pentino. Uh, and the other was a certain pistol originally purchased by an ATF agent. During this particular shootout, um, it said that Mexican beauty queen Maria Susana Flores Gomez and four others were killed. The report goes on to say, this links the ATF Fast and Furious case to the Sinaloa cartel, the cartel that was headed by El Chapo Guzman. I am not trying to say that that is factual. I'm saying the allegations are out there. El Universal had, a few years back, a large report about alleged connections between El Chapo, and the CIA. Now, it's very hard to find some of the background information. So, I'm going to tell you what it says, and later we're going to talk about its validity, um, what it's based on, etc. But for now, just please allow me to just give you the allegations, and then we can we can go. So, 
L Universal says that the Sinaloa cartel and El Chapo in particular and the CIA struck a deal during the years of about 2000 to 2012 where the U.S. basically let the Sinaloa cartel bring in their drugs to the United States at least in a certain amount. There was like a a quota. Can't go over this, but here's what you can bring in. In exchange for a continuing flow of information on rival Mexican organizations, including AFO, BLO, and the Zetas. According to documents published by the site, we'll talk about that in the next episode, the testimonies or the allegations are corroborated by testimony from a DEA agent and a Justice Department official. Don't accept that as true at the moment, but that's what Universal says, or L Universal. In addition, if you go back and you look at the trial of El Chapo, we're going to look at that in detail coming up, Vicente uh, Zambada Niebla, the son of El Mayo, gave testimony that seems to support the idea that the CDS, the Sinaloa cartel, was at least given preferential consideration over other cartels in exchange for information about those other cartels. Now, I'll admit, it it gets a little, we'll we'll talk about it, but it gets a little bit hinky because of of who's saying what and what their basis is for saying it. But there are, amongst other things, according to the lawyer for Zambada Diebla, um, but he says that there was a time when Someone in the Sinaloa cartel went to the DEA, provided information which led to the seizure of 23 tons of drugs from rival organizations and led further to kind of a hands-off or at least a soft-touch approach to the Sinaloa cartel itself. There also are are comments and claims from the El Chapo trial that Operation Fast and Furious was designed to trace arms to Mexican cartels, um, and that at that time, again, the U.S. government was arming the Sinaloa cartel in order to help it take down rival groups. We've talked about it before. Have we seen over time evidence where the Sinaloa cartel was viewed as the lesser of, of evils. And so if you have, you know, AFO in, in Tijuana, which is causing problems in a prominent border net town, if you have Zetas doing their thing, that maybe it's better to support CDS. Not that you love them, but that they're better than the alternatives. So um, that's some of, of this 
there was an idea that the collaboration between El Chapo and the CIA, DEA, um, was stopped around 2012, and then there became um, a focus on capturing him. It's also asserted that the DEA and CIA were particularly and directly involved in his captures, uh, including the last time that led to his extradition and led to him being uh, housed in Supermax down the road from me in Florence, Colorado. All right, last thing, again, in this stage that we're setting, this framing of the analysis, the Garcia Luna trial. So Garcia Luna, director of of, uh, national security, head of the anti-drug efforts in Mexico for many years, went on trial, was convicted. Nobody was surprised. Very little testimony on his behalf. He didn't testify, etc. Lots of indirect allegations of his connection to the CIA. Not going to say that you know, that he was directly involved with the CIA or that it's been proven. But there are some things that, as Arsenio Hall used to say, things that make you go, huh. So when Garcia Luna retired in 2012, he received an award from the CIA for his friendship, collaboration, and support. And remember, <laughs> during that time that he was was in charge, when he was active, there was all kinds of testimony about his involvement in uh, or with El Chapo. You know, taking money from El Chapo, helping El Chapo, all kinds of things. Uh, then there was a bunker. They call it the National Intelligence Center, uh, located in Mexico City, which was built uh, under the government or during the government of President Felipe Calderon at the direction of Garcia Luna, and it was a state-of-the-art technology center. Uh, It was said to be the most important criminal intelligence base in Latin America, and its reliability allowed U.S. global entry visas to have their first security checkpoint. It was a strategic command center, et cetera, et cetera. So just, you know, really incredible. Uh, It's also said that it was a restricted location for those who did not have double certification by the CIA and the DEA. Interestingly, uh, in this discussion about this bunker, here's part of what is said. The bunker used to be shown by Garcia Luna to his visitors, although there was access only to the criminal database. Regular visitors included uh, the director of the CIA, Leon Panetta, in his capacity as the director of the CIA, Ronald Noble, who was the head of Interpol, and secretaries of public security in Latin America. So again, you know, draw connections to the CIA, if you will, we know that that you know, they visited, etc. Then we have the Schumer letter, um, where after the Garcia Luna trial, suddenly the U.S. government is concerned about 
the interactions of U.S. agencies with Garcia Luna over the years, how Garcia Luna was allowed to stay in, in power or in his positions for as long as he was, all sorts of things. What's interesting about this, and the most prominent one is a letter from Senator Schumer, where he asked for a variety of things. And amongst the things he asked about is, you know, who vetted Garcia Luna and what are the results of that? What's interesting is those or that request, that letter went to the director of or the administrator of the DEA and the director of the FBI, but not to the CIA. Not drawing any conclusions. Again, just things that are curious. So, so, um, the CIA, and and I want to be a little bit careful. One thing that that I've found is that sometimes um, the uh, lots of things can fit under different names. And so some of these operations may be CIA, they may be uh, people who worked for the CIA, contractors who worked for the CIA, um, but weren't employed by the CIA. They may be people hired third party who didn't have any direct connection to the CIA. Um, It could be other intelligence agencies. Uh, So when we say CIA, we may probably ought to think about it in, in its most broad context, but... What we know, what do we know for sure? We know they engage in black operations and have for years. And we suspect those types of off-the-books, non-reported, non-oversight activities continue to take place. We know that there have been allegations of drugs, narcotics trafficking, narcotics profits to the CIA for years we know that there have been allegations of CIA involvement with the Sinaloa cartel for many years. And we know that the CIA had some type of relationship with Garcia Luna. So with that background, we're now going to take a couple of different paths to bring this back to the Camarena case and bring back the allegations of CIA involvement in the Camarena case and see to what extent, if any, and those of you who followed me know what I think the answer is, there is any support, any justification for those allegations. All right. This went a little bit longer than I expected. I appreciate everybody who listens. Again, comments, criticisms, don't call me naive, please. Let's have the dialogue. Let's be academically honest. When we come to conclusions, let's try to get them right. And if we're wrong, let's say we're wrong and figure out what the right answer is. That's the way to do it because history isn't history. Have a great week, everybody. And I will see you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena.